Let's pray together. Gracious God, we give you thanks for this day and for these words. May they invite us to wonder and to be challenged. Because at the heart of you is both wonder and challenge. Be with us, we pray. Send us your spirit. In Christ's name. Amen. This week is the beginning um, of the end of the three-year cycle um, that we often read the Bible in on Sunday. We call it the lectionary, and we have an appointed passages each week. And um, as we get closer to uh, Advent and Christmas, which starts at the end of the month, the lectionary starts winding down. And one of the interesting things that it does every single year is it starts asking us to read the passages about the end of the world. And so if you read for the next couple of weeks, you're going to get a lot about the second coming of Christ, about the end of the world, um, about sheep and goats, about separation, about exclusion. Um, And so it's a very challenging um, group of scriptures to read if you're a person who really believes that Christianity is about love and inclusion and generosity of spirit Um, and all of that stuff. It's a really challenging time in the lectionary. But yet those passages are there, and so we have to wrestle with them. If you read some of the things that Paul wrote in the early or mid-first century, you get a sense that they believed the end of the world was going to happen in their lifetime. Um, It was imminent. There was an imminence to their sense of history coming to an end, and there was a sense of hope that they had that in the end, When everything was boiled down, God would be um, on their side, that God would vindicate their faith, that God would vindicate their persecution, God would vindicate their suffering. So there's a sense of expectation and hope, which is not so much in this realistic, scientific sense that we think of often as modern people, but the sense of projecting um, what they wanted, what they hoped would happen, what they believed and trusted God would do for them. And at the heart of all of these parables and passages is this kernel of the unexpected. Um, And, of course, we know this sense of the unexpected very well. Um, We've been through a global pandemic. We've been put through so many things that were unexpected. We've been asked to do things and uh, jump through the hoops that we never expected to do. And we knew that we would get out of it. We knew that we'd come to the other side, but we didn't know what shape we would be in. And as we approach Christmas, it's that very sense of unexpectedness that we're asked to ponder once again. And these passages about the second coming, these passages about the end of the world, these passages of when the kingdom comes, these are all passages about the unexpectedness that is at the heart of God. Of course, it's the unexpected that occurs in Christmas where God becomes human. It's the unexpectedness of God becoming human in a poor first century Palestinian baby born to a nobody in a nothing town. This unexpectedness is why the Christian story from time immemorial has been so difficult for people to wrap their heads around. And in cultures gone now from our modern times, but in ancient cultures, it was so, in some senses, unbelievable that human beings would put their faith and their trust and their allegiance in the story of a God who was weak and able to be killed. These things would have just absolutely boggled the mind. And yet this week's parable, when we think of the parable of the bridesmaids, it strikes me that there's a bunch of things happening in this parable which I think are fascinating. 
because if we read them, it's, if we read them flatly, it's ominous in some ways. We go, well, what am I supposed to make of this? What does this do for my faith? What does this do for my sense of understanding God the way I understand God? And in this parable throughout history, there's been a lot of people talk about it. You know, you think of these bridesmaids, and this is a parable that Jesus is telling. And so I had a look and did some research, and you know, Jesus tells 104 parables in the New Testament. And in all of those 104 parables, only 12 women feature as characters. And 10 of them are in this story. Which means that there's only one other story where a woman features. Um, and there's only, th- there's only three stories then. Uh, where women feature at all. So we see here at the very beginning, there is a a cultural element that's overlaid on scripture that being so far removed, we really don't have access to, that we need to take stock of. There's a sense in which there's an underrepresentation of women in a way, of of telling their story in a way that's, um, that's valuable and valiant and something worth emulating and something worth acknowledging as real and powerful. Um, And this underrepresentation is is made even more potent in the sense of um, basically calling out these bridesmaids for being foolish. When we engage in faith, it's oftentimes we have to think of who is at the center and who is at the margins. And when we look at the Bible through the eyes of people on the margins, we begin to read it differently. Um, the women in this story, the bridesmaids, don't even have names, and yet we're told that they're bearers of a message of unexpected hope. That's the function of this story. They are bearers of a message of unexpected hope. Um, in some earlier translations, um, the kind word bridesmaid wasn't even used. It was the word virgin. So these were ten virgins. And so you might wonder to yourself, what would that language do for the story? Um, who wrote that kind of thing? You know, who understood things in those terms? And nevertheless, you have God working through these nameless, um, poor, marginalized individuals And it's a clear nod to the way that the New Testament understands um, power coming from places, unexpected places, unexpected people. Uh, People speaking prophetically, acting prophetically, doing things in God's name that no one would ever expect it. And so as one scholar puts it, this is a parable of 10 unnamed women. Therefore, it's an affirmation of the strength of women as bearers and instruments and agencies and the resources of the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the things we're invited to listen to, to lend our ear to in these stories of final judgment is um, by way of these unnamed women. So we're invited to throw off this sense that um, powerful people, powerful men in particular, can lead the way, that we need to listen to them. Rather, we're being asked to, um, to look at and read through the eyes of these women. Of course, one of the things that happens in religion is religion is really good about um, creating the politics of exclusion. You can see that all around the world, even in our modern time. The way that we understand God, the way that we read our holy scriptures, often leads us as human beings into a politics of exclusion. Um, we think that in God's name, we can kind of dedicate ourselves to preserving us, even if it means killing them. Um, And, of course, the us and the them, those are interchangeable realities throughout history. 
And in this story, the wedding feast, the door, is closed to those who are late. And this is a great metaphor in some ways for the history um, in our own time and place. Sometimes doors are barred from the inside, which is interesting. Sometimes we, as people of faith, create barriers to others who want or need to be fully included, who want to be in the community, who want to be members of the community. Often these barriers are arbitrary, and other times they're based on traditions that are very meaningful to us, even if we don't remember why they're meaningful to us. In this case, the door is locked from the inside. The bridesmaids simply miss the time and place. They're unprepared, but why? Well, perhaps it's all the hoops they had to jump through. They need lamps to go to a wedding. Why do they need lamps to go to a wedding? I've seen Kiwis rock up to weddings in rugby shorts and jandals. I mean, perhaps they could take a lesson from us. In reality, what we have to see here in this parable is that it's working at the same time on two levels. The first is to point to the importance of women as participating in the heavenly banquet, which I think would have been revolutionary and huge in the Matthean community in the first century. But the second is to address this pastoral issue that seems to be happening within Matthew's community. So it's an uncomfortable mixture. The laudable first goal is swept into the specter of the second. In the end, we're left wondering, is the kingdom of God really like ten women going to war over some oil? (laughs) Exclusion always functions as a matter of power. The parable has an obvious hierarchy built into it. The bridesmaids are at the bottom. They are excluded from the feast because they're unprepared. But where are they supposed to find oil for their lamps at midnight in the middle of nowhere? So who are the bridesmaids? of our time and place, who have been excluded from the table, from the fellowship of the church, from the power positions of the church, from the positions of authority and shaping a future of the church? What barriers have we erected in God's name that ensures people arrive at the banquet all dressed up, but not with enough oil for their lamps? I can name a few, and I'm sure that you can name a few too if you put your mind to it. This parable also reminds us the importance of being alert and being conscious. This is one of the other functions that Jesus is telling this parable for. I think it's interesting that when Jesus tells parables, we often approach them as Jesus believing everything he's saying in the parable as being the gospel truth. And it's more interesting to me to think of this parable as a sort of negative example that Jesus tells. So Jesus tells the story in some senses as a negative example because the next story he's going to tell is about whenever you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. It's the exact inversion of the politics of exclusion, right? It's asking the disciples of all time to recognize the face of Christ in the people that they would readily discard as meaningless and insignificant and on the margins of society, on the margins of church life, on the margins of religious life. And so I think Jesus is here telling his disciples this story as a way to prep them, as a way to wind them up in some ways, Kind of going, oh, that story, I, I don't want to be caught out myself. I don't want to be unprepared. I don't want to be a bridesmaid. And then Jesus tells a story in the next one about sheep and goats being separated. Well, how do I know if I'm a sheep or a goat? Well, when you visited me in prison, when you gave me a cold cup of water. They say, well, how did we do that? When did we do that? He said, whenever you did it to the least of these. So you did it to me in unexpected ways and unexpected times. So sometimes Jesus tells parables not because they're the gospel truth, but because he wants to set up a new teaching, a new way of thinking about things. And he often does this in his parables, I think. And throughout history, we've just read these parables flatly as going, well, this is what it looks like to enter the kingdom. 
and I need to be careful. I need to make sure that I've got, I'm prepared and that I have enough oil for my lamp and that I'm there at midnight and I'm knocking on the right doors and I'm dressed right. And rather, I think Jesus is trying to tell this story to then undo it in the rest of the chapter. He's seeking to undo the imaginations of all the things that we've set up as they need to be this way. They have to be the way. This is the way they've always been. Jesus tells a story. He gets them to nod. And then he says, and now I'm going to completely burst your bubble. And so it's a wake-up call, these parables, right? And um, in a very kind of disquiet way, <laughs> quieting way, you know, there's this language that we use uh, nowadays that the young people are using about being woke. You might have heard of it. It's become a political football in some ways. And uh, the origins of the stay woke, that sentiment, uh, came out of marginalized communities who were speaking to each other in ways that just said, be conscious, be conscious of what's going on in the world, be conscious of what's happening. It wasn't about policing language, it wasn't about cultural battles or wars, about winning things, it was simply about people who were on the margins, speaking to other people on the margins, saying, we need to be conscious, we need to be aware, we need to be aware of where we sit, where we are, and how we get to where we want to get to. And these parables are invitations to us to stay awake, to not fall asleep at the wheel of our religious lives, right? To not just go with the flow, to not just occupy space, to not just warm pews for 70 years or however long it might be. This is an invitation for us to be intentional, that our faith requires intentionality, and it requires us doing something. It requires us being invested in it, in relationships and in attendance and in service and in support and being directed towards it. These are all things that require energy and effort. They are not the road to heaven, but they certainly are the byproducts of faithfulness, of an honest attempt to follow Jesus. Lastly, this parable points us in the direction of what New Testament scholar uh, N.T. Wright calls the, the element of being surprised by hope. Theologically, this unpredictability is a hallmark of not only our world, but the Christian God. One of the hallmarks of the Jewish conception of God was the certainty of who was in and who was out. And we see that in many ways playing out all over the world. This is, of course, this national ethnic dynamic of the Jew versus the Gentile. However, in the parable that we read this morning that we've heard, it suggests that there's turning a different dynamic owing to God's unpredictability. Suddenly, this conception of who's in and who's out is all up in the air. Not even Jesus knows the date and time of the return of the Son of Man, he tells his disciples. Unpredictable, unpredictability is this very important category for the people of God because the God of the Bible has chosen to be associated with calling people and sending people and encountering people and even incarnating as a human being and pouring out the Holy Spirit on entire communities who are on the margins, who you would not predict God to bless. And all of this is happening in the fullness of God's own time, not on our timeline, but in the unpredictability of God's time. And even the idea of God returning in Christ nods to the unpredictability of God. For the call is to keep awake and to be prepared, to be able to meet God at God's time, in God's place, which confounds both human predictions and expectations. So we come to these parables with a certain amount of suspicion and a certain amount of opening ourselves up to being challenged. 
And this morning, as we think about these dynamics of exclusion and inclusion, we come then to this table. Isn't it ironic that we come to this central practice of the Christian community for millennia, which is a practice of inclusion and joining and being together and feasting and celebrating and enjoying each other in God's name. And so all the politics of exclusion that society or even church would demand us to partake in are unwound, are undone in this meal. All those bits and pieces of us that sort people as in and out, as categorically better or worse than us, all of those things are in some ways exploded in this meal. And you and I are invited to join Jesus at this table and to have our faith fed and to have our spirit nourished so that we can love God and we can love our neighbor. And to that I say, thanks be to God. Amen.